Public Space and the Regeneration of City Life. Moderator, Dean Elizabeth Meyer, School of Architecture. Speakers, Professor Inyaki Alday, Architecture, Principal of Alday Joever Architects. Associate Professor Julie Bargman, Architecture, Principal of Dirt Studio. Miss Margarita Jover, Lecturer, Architecture, Principal of Alday Jover Architects. Thank you. So, uh, welcome to the talk on public space, and uh, thanks for coming. Since I heard that Nicole Aramo was speaking at the same time, and I think for um, uh, all kinds of reasons, it's remarkable that um, all of us are in this room and not listening to her. Um, for those who don't know her, she's in the Dean of Students office and has been in the hot seat this past year. Um, I'm really pleased uh, to be um, introducing three colleagues I admire immensely. I can't really uh, take the role of moderator since uh, none of them are moderate. Uh, they are, in fact, um, uh, extremely talented. And so let me say a few words about our speakers. Um, Inyaki Alde is the chair of architecture, and he's also a principal in the firm Alde Javert. Uh, Margarita Javert is our first professor of practice in the School of Architecture, and uh, she is also a principal in Alde uh, Javert. And the two of them uh, have been practicing for some 20 years together. Uh, their work has been um, uh, premiated by the European Landscape Architecture Biennale Prize. It's been nominated for the Mies van der Rohe Award and has won the European Urban Public Space Award. The two of them, trained in architecture, are also extraordinary landscape designers and urban designers. And they'll be talking about um, a series of their projects independently, since they are, in fact, uh, quite uh, distinct and different um, individuals. And uh, one thing I would like to note in terms of an extension of uh, their public space expertise to uh, places a little bit closer to home than Spain, uh, where they've been practicing, is to note that uh, Margarita will be leading an important uh, design research studio for the next two years, looking at both um, uh, the um, possibility of residential uh, college um, uh, experiences in the West complex of the hospital grounds, uh, and that's uh, at the invitation of President Sullivan. And that urban design project will take a very interesting uh, and require a very um, important public space initiative. And for those who know the West Complex, that's where the clinics are, and there's uh, exploration of them moving. Um, our uh, third speaker, um, uh, who will actually speak uh, second, is Julie Bargman, who is the new chair of the Department of Landscape Architecture, uh, new as in five days ago. And Julie, like uh, uh, both uh, Inyaki and Margarita, is an extremely talented designer. Her practice, uh, Dirt Studio, uh, has um, uh, been the recipient of uh, numerous awards uh, from both the American Society of Landscape Architects and the AIA, the American Institute of Architects. And uh, like uh, Margarita and Inyaki, she challenges the boundaries of a profession and I think you can see through the three of them how challenging the boundaries of our profession is actually necessary for the construction of um, great public spaces. I want to say just a few remarks about uh, the situation of public space today to launch uh, the um, uh, seminar. 
Um, the idea that public space is fundamental to the life of our communities might have been laughable 15 years ago. Uh, all kinds of journalists and critics were basically saying that public space was dead. Uh, who needed physical public space uh, when you had uh, the uh, social um, uh, communities uh, beginning to emerge uh, in digital space? Uh, and um, many people who saw actual uh, public spaces, um, plazas like those on our downtown mall, um, suburban town centers, a question how public something could be when it was managed by a private entity. So there was a criticism that so-called public spaces had become over-managed, over-commodified, um, uh, only possible if you could afford a $3 cup of coffee. And then um, a third group um, challenged the idea that public spaces were desirable places to be in given the hardening of public space after September 11th. And any of you who live in a major city with a major public building know um, how difficult it is to feel comfortable and safe in a public space when you're surrounded by security bollards and change, flower pots, um, uh, hiding and masquerading, um, all kinds of security hardening. And so um, what is remarkable, I think, today is how we can look back and say those calls that public space were dead were premature. And I think there's a couple of reasons that's happened. Some of it is from watching the news and seeing the impulse to gather in public space at times of um, uh, incredible pressure, uh, like the uprisings in Tahir Square or the occupation of Wall Street. Um, or for those of us who watched how New York City responded to uh, Superstorm Sandy and began uh, to see local governments and designers um, calling for new kinds of public space that integrated green and blue infrastructure uh, in order to create more resilient communities. And then I'd say even closer to home, those of us who were here during the summer of the attempted ouster, President Sullivan realized that um, Facebook and social media wasn't enough, and we found ourselves gathered on the lawn time and time again uh, to show our solidarity and to voice uh, our concerns. So public space still matters, and the question today is how and uh, why. Um, our speakers today are going to present their projects through the lens of three occupations that we identified that undergird um, much contemporary work and I think account for a lot of the innovations in public space. One is the shift in what we've um, been describing as a shift from a social conception of public space. We have public spaces to come together um, uh, because we're human beings and we like each other's company, to an expansion of that sense of community to be socio-ecological. What does it mean for a public space to actually be serving a more expanded community of both humans and non-humans? Um, a second is uh, the invention that happens when designers um, hybridize familiar types of public space. And much of that hybridization includes the incorporation of infrastructure that might have been the um, territory of engineers and another generation. So hybridizing infrastructural processes and systems into public space. And then finally, and one that um, I think is very important, is a commitment to defending the public realm and um, caring for who has the right to the city 
um, in the face of private development, recognizing that many of our clients um, are private and yet um, the spaces that they are um, managing and caring for uh, have a public role. Um, so uh, Inyaki will start out, and uh, we look forward to the questions and, af and uh, answers afterwards. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Beth, for this amazing introduction. Thank you all uh, for coming and attending this, this seminar. I will elaborate, of course, on the topic of the, of the session, the public space, but I will do it uh, perhaps taking, uh, uh, of course, the three lenses that Beth was mentioning, the socio-ecological, the innovation in typology, and uh, the public-private uh, uh, enterprise or very different kinds of permutations, but uh, through the lens, specific lens of the, of the infrastructure with a series of projects that uh, we designed uh, with Margarita in, in Aldai Joubert. Um, we think uh, that these are two key concepts, uh, urbanization, the absolutely unstoppable process of urbanization, that we, it's happening at every scale in every corner of the world, and the only way to approach this gigantic uh, phenomena, which is innovation. Why? Uh, because of a third concept, equality, that is the, the basic condition that this process of urbanization uh, will succeed and will make the planet uh, sustainable uh, for the future. So for us, one of the key opportunities to pursue the, the equality is through a new understanding uh, through the innovation in infrastructures, uh, transforming what is what are have been, or what have been single logic and single performance infrastructures, uh, infrastructure for energy that produces energy and that's all. For instance, infrastructure of transportation that just moves people or goods to a hybrid, multi-purpose uh, uh, infrastructure. I want to read very briefly a, a, a quote of. Um, the Bloomberg Professor of Economics at Harvard University, Rash Shetty, uh, the Bates Medal in Economy, that in an interview was uh, asked which is the reason for um, a city to give more opportunities of upward mobility, of social progress, than another city. The answer to this question, uh, after all his studies in this uh, social mobility, is uh, near is that the proximity among rich and poor in cities where rich and poor live nearby and not far away uh, is a key question, this proximity among uh, people. Uh, the progress is easier for everyone. Therefore, a good public transportation offers opportunities. So public transportation even uh, for uh, equi equity reasons. <clears throat> I will start with the simple definition of infrastructure, the basic equipment and structures such as roads and bridges that are needed for a country, region, or organization to function properly. And we can distinguish in a very simplified way as well about, uh, among soft 
infrastructures, governance, economic, social, cultural, sport, recreational, the infrastructures which, in which public, in which sorry, architecture, landscape architecture, urban design has traditionally focused, and the hard infrastructures, transportation, energy, hydraulic, communications, waste, air monitoring, monitoring. It's coming from Wikipedia. Very, very simple. But those are the infrastructures in which uh, we find opportunities. In these hard infrastructures is the space of the, of the tough problems and is the space of the opportunities. I'm going to talk about energy and transportation with a series of projects that we have uh, built or are about to build. And, we are to go and I'm going to talk with this concept of hybrid infrastructures. How an infrastructure becomes uh, hybrid? Uh, first of all, through uh, making it public, public space, public accessibility, accessibility, public transparency, public cultural meaning, and multiple performance. I'm going to start with energy, and I'm going to show a building uh, that produces energy that is normally opaque, that is placed in an industrial site uh, far from the rest of the people and is totally uh, unurban in the sense of when you use urbanity to say also courtesy, uh, urban courtesy. So this is the, what, the water park of Zaragoza, 2008, uh, Expo 2008, and a series of buildings uh, we organized, creating a new facade for the city. And in this, among these buildings, there were office buildings, commercial buildings, uh, institutional buildings, and an energy, a power plant here in front of the neighborhood and making the facade of this, um, of this park towards the city. The idea was to hybridize, uh, not only civilize this, this facility, but also hybridize and create a new typology that, of course, produces cool, heat, and electricity, but also explains its performance and also becomes a cultural center uh, towards the public space. The building is, is really a tough industrial building, but it has facades. It's urbanized. It's part of the, of the urban uh, context. It's a little bit mysterious in between the city and the river and performs in a very sophisticated way, uh, trying to improve the efficiency of energy uh, through also the relation with the river, uh, you all have heard of geothermal. It would be a kind of river thermal. So uh, increasing the efficiency and, the, and the, uh, lowering the use of, of, of energy through the regulation of the temperature with the river. It's also a piece of the park. And you see it in front of the channel. It's part of the, of the public realm of the park. And is part of the public realm through the visit and through the accessibility. So this mysterious, strange building is, 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 has safe balconies to show how it's performing, to show the spaces, the very sophisticated machinery spaces, and also has, a, a, has this value as a cultural center through the projection of video arc. Uh, video artworks. It's a gigantic urban screen towards the public space. Uh, we didn't realize that inside 
the building. We were going to be also seeing the movies. So that was a very nice surprise. And at that time, 2008, it was one of the first media facades that were built. So not a screen on top of a facade like, sorry, like in Times Square, uh, but uh, totally integrated through a system of LEDs and using the polycarbonate roof as the uh, media of uh, light projection. So at night, the building disappears, especially when it's darker than in this photograph because of the dark color of the concrete and to become a space for projection of video towards the, the public space. So that was our experiment of working with this hybridization of a very tough industrial infrastructure and creating it as a public uh, enterprise. When we, <clears throat> the other topic that, uh, that I was going to tackle was, uh, is uh, transportation and the opportunity of transportation and infrastructures of transportation to create public space uh, in a very radical uh, way. This is in the, in the city of Zaragoza and we, we were asked uh, to uh, participate in the urban integration of the new tramway. Uh, it was a commission that started like choosing tiles. Uh, you say, well, no. Uh, yes, yes, I want to choose that, those tiles. Of course, the choosing of the tiles is not only that, but it's, it's a very fundamental decision. When you decide where, who steps where. So you reorganize the space of the city through deciding which are the paths, which are the priorities, where the car is, where the tramway is, where the pedestrian are, and how vegetation and other components uh, come into place. So back to the, to the uh, rush, uh, Jetty's quote, the public transportation as a mean uh, for equality. Uh, in this sense, the major was extremely um, brave and decided to move from the very southern neighborhood to the very northern neighborhood, crossing the entire city from periphery and low-income areas to the wealthy center, to the historic Roman area, again to the periphery. So uh, we could say that, that every spot of the city is accessible and is visible and is public, and everyone in the city has the right to access to everywhere in the city. In the 50s, this is an image of Spain in the 50s. It's a kind of exotic situation. There was a tramway already. People were crossing with the chart, not very concerned about the traffic. It didn't seem to be very dangerous. People here walking, one, two, maybe 20 cars in this image. In the 60s, we became Spain modern. And we decided that for more or less the same number of cars, we needed 12 lanes in this old boulevard, a gigantic roundabout. People begin to feel uncomfortable walking around in this, in what was a shared space. <coughs> this was a city of boulevards, and the boulevards were cut through because of the traffic, roundabouts. These are recent pictures, of course, more modern and uh, the total destruction of that uh, pedestrian structure and physical structure and vegetal structure of the, of the city. Uh, the result of these boulevards was gentrification, marginalization, and abandon, as you see. 
This was just before the beginning of the, of the change of the construction. Walls, side by side, protecting from traffic and noise, and very little use, and very deserted. Through the tramway, there's a huge opportunity to recover the priorities. The public transportation has the priority, so everyone linked to public transportation and in the same direction has all the priority. Bicycle, pedestrian, people. So this becomes a kind of huge uh, eight miles park, linear park of the city. The opportunity to link with the historic parks Instead of having a roundabout, this is the survival of the roundabout that was here, this small, beautiful tree, but now it's linked to the pedestrian instead of being isolated in the traffic, and this direct connection between these spaces. And also the image of the city, an image of a city that, that is modern, that is, has to be with ecology, with uh, pedestrian, with uh, efficiency of transportation, and which the idea of, of a mean of transportation that is public, is for everyone, is very cheap, is affordable, but is high class, the tramway. And every citizen uh, of the city now is an is a upper class citizen that access to a silent, modern, and comfortable system of transportation. When we move to a larger scale uh, infrastructures, and I will go fast, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is a competition that we won and we are in the, going to begin the, the construction uh, soon in Barcelona, what we call the new green diagonal of Barcelona. And it comes from the understanding that the high-speed train and the tunnels of the train are an opportunity to change the city, not only to dig down, but the tunnel is the opportunity to rethink the surface again. So the city decided to move the main transportation hub to a new location and to use, the, use this opportunity to rethink the north of the city. So the, this is the map of, uh, of uh, Europe, uh, familiar to everyone, but this is probably a more realistic map of Europe. This is the map of time. So probably it's more real the distance in between Barcelona and Paris, much shorter than the Barcelona to Galicia, to the, world, to the west northwest of Spain than the physical, which is tricky, and who travels will see that is fake. So the opportunity of, of reusing all this old area of the, of the rail tracks and the, and the industrial pieces around the tracks, a huge piece of Barcelona that is cutting side by side the neighborhoods of the south with the neighborhoods of the north, and the possibility of connecting with the exterior of the city, with the, with the mountains and with the region. So we thought in a regional uh, geographical proposal of a linear park of two and a half miles that is linking at many scales. It's linking the people of the neighborhood, but it's linking the city with the outside and the territory in a layer of buildings. And here it comes again, the public and the private and the developments under a public leadership but with a private uh, collaboration, buildings, public space, urban infrastructures, and transportation infrastructures in, a, in an idea of going back to the, to the history and to the, uh, and to the geography. So very quickly, some images of what it will be, what is now. 
it's very scary. These are the these are the, the the slabs that are covering the trench of the train in which this park will be built. And we really think that uh, it's a very sophisticated park with vegetation in only one and a half meters, five feet uh, thickness, which is expensive. We believe that it's extremely cheap socially because it means bringing nature and connecting the city with the exterior for people who cannot afford going every weekend outside, who has not a second residence, who has not a car to, to go outside. So it's a, I would, we would say, a very cheap public investment, also to link the neighborhood side by side. If the project is this, the project is also this connection and some images of this very strange situation, having all these tunnels with ventilations, access, and, and really tricky situations to create these agoras, these spaces for the neighborhood to meet and to jump over the trench that had happened for the last 150 years. Some images. This is the main uh, fountain in the, in the meeting of the two main neighborhoods. And some images of how it will look like with the very tricky topography that the trains uh, also create. So infrastructures as, as this opportunity, the, what we could say, the cathedrals of our time, we, thought, we think they should be these cathedrals in which uh, is the space of the public, of the meeting of the public, in which everyone is equal, has equal rights, and are constructing the territory, the city, and the public spaces of our time with this socio-ecological performance, this innovation, and this new understanding of the role of the public and the private. Thank you. Hi, I'm Julie. Um, and um, this title slide, I should note, is an image of my home state, the Garden State, as we like to call it, New Jersey. Um, a landscape, actually, that I'm very proud of because it's a landscape that I've become, um, I have been obsessed with for over 20 years uh, since a lot of the space, post-industrial space um, of our world is um, needing to be reclaimed, and it won't necessarily be reclaimed in the form of uh, private redevelopment, economic development, since a lot of the cities can't afford that, but in fact they may become... Um, I hope, uh, important parts of the public realm. Um, and I have to say that I've had the extremely fantastic pleasure of developing this body of work, of knowledge, of design research with students. So this is the class of, let's see, they're in there. there's Nancy Takahashi, Eugene Riang. So it's the, this is the class of 2002 probably. So I know they're not here. Give them a few years. Um, but anyway, it's been amazing um, to be working at that point uh, 20 um, years ago, a little less, of um, thinking about reclaiming post-industrial sites. And uh, it was all pretty new, and the students were adventuresome enough to embark upon places like um, the Roebling Steel um, Factory in New Jersey. Um, meanwhile, um, I was running my small firm, uh, 
Um, and yes, we work on very contaminated sites. Yes, I'm exaggerating. We never had to gear up this much. But I always instructed everyone, my students and folks that worked at DIRT, not to lick anything when we, <laughs> when we went to sites. Um, and so I want to share a couple projects. Um, and one is talking about um, when it is that some of these industrial sites are redeveloped and how important it is as landscape architects, um, as designers, to defend the public realm, as has been brought up, um, when it is that you're working with a private enterprise, um, especially when this private enterprise, uh, being urban outfitters, um, some of you may have a piece of anthropology clothing on. Uh, and so they've been my sugar daddy, a great uh, patron for the past 10 years. Um, and they are on a very, very impor important place, not only the civic access of Broad Street in Philadelphia, where they used to be scattered all over um, downtown, all around Rittenhouse Square, but now a civic access that's trying to be formed right down into the historic core of the um, Philadelphia Navy Yard. So in essence, the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation um, is in fact trying to extend um, at least a uh, um, development uh, down to the Delaware River, but I would argue, and I have tried to argue, that they are extending the civic realm on the river. Um, and this is historically uh, what the Navy Yard um, looked like, but in fact, um, Broad Street is right through the center of that image and the Fleet Basin right there. Folks might uh, recognize it because to this day you go over the bridge on 95 and you can see the Fleet Basin. And it's this kind of history that um, to me is when the publicness of that place started. Um, that folks who have worked there for uh, over 100 years are um, the public we should also be responding to and respect. So um, I'm about to slam an architect, sorry. But that's what's an architect's view of the Philadelphia Navy Yard is. And my problem with it is that um, it focuses on this uh, dependence on economic redevelopment um, and that um, all of this will be built out in a perfect circumstance and maybe uh, with some green watercolor uh, you can just add some water and there'll be some public space. Um, I have a feeling that that is actually rather disingenuine to uh, this site and yes um, it may be a bit of greenwashing and not true um, to what is a really gritty, wonderfully deep, deep um, space that has had a, um, a life with a large public for a long time. So there's the historic core um, of the Navy Yard. Uh, Urban Outfitters um, occupied um, all of these buildings. At fir this was the first phase. Then they took this building, and actually right now they've occupied this building and here and here. So anthropology is doing really well. Um, uh, over the a decade that I've been working with urban outfitters, um, they've tripled uh, in size. Um, so it's been fun to work with them. Um, 
little blurry here, but what um, I kind of uh, always like to propose that instead of a master plan, there is a thing called an action plan. Uh, and this is actually me sitting down besides the founder of Urban Outfitters, Dick Hain, um, who is very engaged in the whole process. And I admit that I was starting to brainwash him um, as we were doing this drawing, because as you can see, what I was drawing mostly was the landscape. And I was getting into his mind that the landscape infrastructure, the landscape armature of the campus was going to be the glue of that place. Um, that the, yes, the adaptive reuse of the buildings, which has been absolutely gorgeously done by Meyer Shear and Rockcastle, um, were very important. But what was going to be the, um, the, the public, the shared space that was going to um, tie this whole place together. Again, for me, it's l seeing perhaps the romance of rust, but below that, again, remembering um, many generations and folks like Judy Garland um, having left uh, um, some spirit on the site. And this whole, uh, these generations of making, which I thought was kind of a perverse little addition here that uh, they were going to go from life jackets to, you know, um, red things. Uh, and that also, um, that public space was also very regal um, in that uh, the scale of it was very, very important to really harness the energy, um, again, of, you know, the first Navy Yard um, and the hundreds and thousands of, of um, men and women uh, who served in the Navy. Um, and then down to the subtlety. So in public space, I think there's something pretty wonderful when you can experience both the immense and the intimate, and in this case, have this beautiful, um, these beautiful rails kind of uh, emerging from below, kind of talking um, to history. And so this whole idea of, of excavating, of site forensics to kind of um, literally unearth uh, this pre these previous generations and also sneak in a little bit of an environmental agenda that I told I did not say ever to the client because that was a um, doing a public good that he wasn't necessarily interested in. So I snuck some things in the side door. Um, and began to uh, train a contractor, uh, which was interesting to be careful about how they were demolishing, how it wouldn't go off to the landfill, that it was material that we could use, and that it was something that the uh, contractors um, did, in fact, handle with care. Uh, and we couldn't help ourselves because you work for Urban Outfitters and you have to brand things. So it was, in fact, the workers who called it uh, Barney Rubble. And in fact, by unearthing that uh, concrete and in a way simply rearranging it, we were doing some larger, I think, public good by increasing the porosity of the site by 80%, I think we uh, figured. And now, unbeknownst you know, to a lot of um, folks, when the cherries are in bloom and they're happy, uh, they're happy. Uh, and, but for me, you know, there are those traces that we've kept in place 
of somebody's footprint uh, that worked there, um, uh, asphalt paving with parking stripes, which is part of our, um, our public life, and drilling holes, which probably took a lot of work. Um, and this was this is a uh, a thing again. I mean, I think we're talking about public space and kind of occupying it, but there's also publicness, um, as Anaki was talking about, in terms of a um, a social and environmental um, agenda. So the publicness in this um, slide calculates how much of the Barney rubble uh, did not go to the landfill. And so when phase two came around, it was going to be situated around dry dock number one. Um, and I always look at these historic for, uh, photographs for what might be hiding and note that uh, crane way right there. And this was the, uh, this was the piece of the um, campus, and there's the big um, crane way just two inches underneath uh, asphalt, so as I always say, I didn't have to design much. I just had to find it. Um, but I insisted that the dry dock be thought of as the heart, not just of the Urban Outfitters campus, but the heart of, of the Navy Yard. Um, and uh, so I used to say park, but I would mumble if I was in front of the founder public park. Uh, um, here it is under under construction, and um, that's uh, soon after. So simple areas um, like this uh, became, like I like to say, these runways of every day, and um, and now actually it is pretty great. Whole. Um, Folks come from all over the Navy Yard and um, uh, and uh, from town to come and have lunch. This is uh, Building 543, which is open to the public. Has a great cafeteria, by the way, really good. Um, and everyone is invited to go have lunch um, around Dry Dock Number One. Opening day, and it's also these immense kind of events, but. Again, there's that intimacy of every day of whether or not um, they know that they're walking on the same tracks of uh, Judy Garland or not. I think it's an important part of um, a long history of um, that place. Uh, meanwhile, in Texas, uh, this, is a, um, this is a park that I worked on, uh, worked, collaborated with Stephen Stimson Associates, a dear um, classmate of mine, and this was a case of um, a very strange anomalous piece of land. Uh, you can see north um, and uh, east of downtown uh, that belonged to Minnie and Max Volker. How cool is that? So they were farmers that hold, held on to this 311 acres. Um, this is a mayor that was unbelievably devoted and a champion of public space for San Antonio. The fact that this guy almost single-handedly grabbed a hold of 311 acres uh, in the mid middle of incredible dense area is um, was amazing. Um, and this um, was this landscape. It was a tangle of uh, very degraded, although um, a lot of folks thought it was nature. Um, 
this was not nature. It was, a, it was, um, it was a, another version of it, of a uh, degraded post-agricultural land. Um, so this was where um, early on uh, there was an idea about how to actually hybridize and have a very strong socio-ecological agenda um, for the park, uh, one that spoke for and uh, the landscape, but um, also spoke for uh, many of the folks across um, San Antonio. So the references here being the missions um, and the agricultural, and again, these are a couple um, photos from the site. Um, it is deep in the heart of Texas. What was really interesting, as you can see, it's in, at the convergence of several regions. So it's um, uh, geology and uh, hydrology was really um, quite amazing to work with. Um, and the imperative here um, was that it was a citywide park. And talking about <laughs> defending a realm, a public realm, it's amazing kind of when you have to defend a certain public's realm. I'll tell more of that story later. It's a pretty sad one. But here we are, um, doing, uh, going around the city. At first, the, uh, oops, am I going backwards? No. So um, a very simple strategy for the park was to actually find those places that people would gather as groups and others that would basically kind of scatter throughout the larger landscape mosaic of um, oak woodlands, scrub, and uh, uh, cedar elm woodlands. So this whole idea of subtraction, which students in the audience probably know what I'm talking about here. And it was kind of amazing, the pact we, ran, we made with the, with the public, you know, with the citizens, is that um, only 25% uh, um, of the uh, park, rather than being come, becoming all soccer fields for a certain population of that city, that only 25% uh, of it would be open and uh, primarily uh, not privatized with a lot of program, and that the rest, 75% uh, of 311 acres, were a place to get lost. So places like this, the, um, we call these uh, the Three Sisters, um, and the Three Sisters simply became revealed and um, designated as a uh, as claimed for the public by virtue of these pieces of um, native lands, uh, limestone. The overall um, plan here um, of program on both sides of a giant highway, which I'll talk about more. Um, and again, some more careful insertions and working around um, in a loving way uh, to understand how to invite the public into this um, urban wild. And these, this, this uh, slide always triggers in uh, me a, a very emotional moment uh, in the working with the public. And um, Steve and I uh, uh, went to Austin, Texas, uh, to look at other park precedents. And when we saw, went to Austin, we saw these amazing, amazing uh, long, long picnic tables. Um, and that's where... Uh, Hispanic families would traditionally gather for Easter and for birthdays. I mean, monstrously long tables, uh, like 
and it was just fantastic to see that ritual playing out in those um, those parks. And when the predominantly white middle class uh, neighbors uh, around this park saw the design for these tables, they objected. They said, we don't want them in our park. We said, oh, yeah? <laughs> so Mayor Hardberger was uh, with us in terms of um, uh, doing, uh, making culturally, socially charged uh, picnic benches that are well-loved. Um, and one of the key things, I think a strange twist on infrastructure here was how um, uh, um, a old infrastructure of this giant highway going across here was going to be replaced by a new, uh, um, new arm, uh, infrastructure of this land bridge. Whoops. And I'm sorry, what was being separated is this ecology center. This is Lake Flato Architects. Sorry. Um, the classroom on the other side of the park. Um, you know there's, it's a successful park if there's yoga happening there, right? Um, and here's where Wurzbach Parkway um, made it really two parks. Um, so you can see that dilemma. And in fact, there's the land bridge that Mayor Hardberger is uh, diligently raising funds for, um, which, you know, for us, this was the money shot that uh, Mayor Hardberger uh, sends around to raise, raise money. Um, but if there's anything that uh, warms your heart in terms of, of having the privilege of making public space, it's getting an email from uh, a former uh, student and an alum that says that. So uh, I'm going to go over one project, so in order to try to finish on time. So, uh, and also I'm going to read, because I'm not so fluent, and so, um, okay. So um, let's move the first slide. Right. Uh, as any project in urban design, this one, Aranzadi Park, the green area on the top of the image facing north, is the result of a large team's work with the, com with the complicity and commitment of a client, the municipality of Pamplona in northern Spain. This major space, piece of green land, is part of a larger transformation of the Arga river front into a linear park for both leisure and ecological improvements for the new big Pamplona that, that has grown on the last two decades uh, on the north side of the river. Uh, we are here to talk about public space and the rights and obligations of different citizens um, uh, to use the common grounds. And more and more, uh, sorry, and more specifically, what we 
What can the discipline of design do for providing public space for citizens to use as a tool to decrease fear in relation to the others, like in uh, Julie's studio between Hispanics and others? I would like to add to that discussion here afterwards the subject of other users of public space beyond the citizens. Other users like animals, birds, etc., and other users on water's flood or natural dynamics. I would like to introduce the idea of public space understood as socio-ecological spaces. In other words, spaces shared by citizens, fauna, and river dynamics on different time frames, public spaces of negotiation, expression, conflict, rights and obligations between citizens and also between natural dynamics and human beings. Pamplona is an old city founded 1,000 years before Christ, quite old, and part of the Roman Empire since one century before Christ. The old city is located up in a hill 20 meters, 60 feet above the river, and its main growth occurred during the Middle Ages, forming three bergs on top of the hill. This is the map on your upper left, in black and white. Since the 17th century, the three bergs were protected from northern attacks by ramparts that were partially demolished in the 1930s, allowing an extension towards the southeast and southwest. You can see on red the, uh, the walls that were partially destroyed. Uh, and see also the meander quite surprisingly stable in its shape over time. Below left, you can see the uh, south ramparts and below right, the north ramparts and the park at the bottom of the image. While the city of Pamplona was growing south on the upper terrace, the northern part was mainly dedicated to agriculture until the, line, the late 19th century when the last migrations from the countryside occupied this northern line, typically periodically flooded. The image below is showing the working class neighborhood of Chantrea and Rochapea on the northern part uh, of the meander that have grown extensively since then. As a result of this urban growth, the river is suddenly the backbone of the big Pamplona. Again, this meander has been a quite stable figure while all other meanders were moving as they do. Uh, here you can see the trace of the different meanders all over. But surprisingly, this one appears in uh, very old images uh, of the city, or plans of the city. While the city of Pamplona was growing south on the upper terrace, the northern part was mainly dedicated, sorry, many different urban and natural dynamics here are playing at once uh, on this side. You, you, you can see these green spaces in the middle and uh, a dense city that surrounds this space. The river, its floods, and associated ecosystems are now constrained into the river's bed, increasing water speed and erosion, pushed by old vegetable gardens organized at the tip of the meander by raising topographically the plots and using the richest and finest land. All this area have been raised, uh, filling with earth, 
over time during centuries to organize those rich vegetable gardens. Um, so during the last decades, public facilities such as public gym and swimming pools, elder, elderly residents and schools are built also on site, as well as private houses that uh, from initially small constructions to store tools to manage vegetable gardens have been appearing over time. All the meander was occupied by somehow illegal constructions. As a result, when entering the meander in 2008, the perception was a very fragmented landscape, broken in small properties, closed individually by fences of all kind. The municipality had the vision to buy, somehow expropriate, the land, even being already illegal to own land here, while keeping people in place cultivating. At the same time, the municipality organized an international competition to transform the meander into a public park for the new Big Pamplona. From our perspective, as every project in the discipline of urban landscape design, Aranzadi Park is essentially a project of transformation of a complex reality that already exists at many scales. A complex reality of the many systems overlapped, both natural and urban, that constitutes the essence of what outdoor urbanized space is. Systems that range from water dynamics, animal flows, mobility, connectivity, urban fabric, density, facilities, living systems such, such as vegetation or agriculture to just point some are all different aspects of the reality that overall constitutes this urbanized ecosystem in which we live. The proposal that our large team did was essentially centered, centered in rebalancing natural and human dynamics in a space that we claimed a space of cohabitation and coexistence, a space that would be shared by natural and human dynamics, rethinking the position of domination that industrialized society and modernist urban models imposed over the territory in Europe since the 19th century, especially in rivers. This attitude and approach from the modernist city that is about separating functions and channelizing rivers is still operating culturally and technically nowadays. Going down in scale, three systems were intensively studied, agriculture, water, and vegetation. The first system we recognized as valuable inside of the meander is related to human culture. In French, Culture has double meaning, being the first broadly related to knowledge and the second related to the care of growth of food. In that sense, agriculture was here culture in its, in its first meaning related to the recovery of local species such as the famous uh, Crispilla lettuce, recovering biodiversity. As well, as well as culture in its second caption, meaning the knowledge associated to the care of growth of food in an organic manner. Being Europe a continent without large amount of land, cheap energy, nor cheap workforce, the continent can only compete globally with high levels of quality of food associated to site specificity. Here in Pamplona, a city of 200,000 inhabitants, local vegetables are produced in specific soils, the valleys of rivers, 
as the wine is related to specific grapes, climates, and soils. And people have large culture about seasonality of vegetables and their origins in daily basis at every social level. If we, were, if we were to attend only ecological logics, we would have decided to destroy the most precious vegetable gardens to make room for the river and its floods at the tip of the meander. But we decided to keep the richest pieces of land worked during centuries by many people at the Crown, although this decision was against the ideals of ecology, which would have taken away the vegetable gardens to widen the river's bed. This decision of keeping agriculture is articulated also socially with an, agreement, with an agreement with the municipality who owns the land. Some areas of those vegetable gardens will be, are being now, used by citizens with mental and physical disabilities as well as with social issues. Other pieces of land are managed by a foundation that promotes organic agriculture called Fundagro. And a third operator is formed by individuals, citizens, in rental mode. As a result, Aranzadi Park is keeping and recovering biodiversity of original species to carry into the future while keeping the engagement of citizens into agriculture inside the city. The second system is the river and its hydrology, flora and fauna. The natural speed of the river, the erosion and deposition dynamics have changed due to human transformation so, such as dikes, dikes that have been built all over the edge of the river in both sides. Um, increasing, of course, the, uh, the speed and the, the erosion. As a result, the flood is a sudden invasion instead of a gradual process. Nevertheless, with these in uh, unavoidable periodical floods, farmers on site have already developed resilience and capacity of cohabitation. Sophisticated fences that are mobile uh, are built to not offer resistance to water and what water is carrying, such as those. Those is like, uh, uh, can move. And as well as wise bushes that simply filter solids, slowing down water speed and helping sediments to precipitate and fertilize are part of the mechanisms built over time. In relation to water dynamics, Aranzadi proposal is opening up an almost existing inner river that allow natural dynamics to be recovered while keeping the cultural and urban values already mentioned. The natural water flows are here adopted as part of the park. The challenge has been to rebalance the relation of domination and force towards natural dynamics, incorporating them in spaces of cohabitation, spaces that belong to different agents through time, spaces of negotiation, spaces for citizens and for waters to flow. The trace of the new inner river that you have seen on the previous slide is based on the existing microtopography that was already on place. The shape of this new in, inner river is defined by changing the role of some of the existing plot's properties without imposing a new geometry, easy to build by just reusing them in a pragmatic way. Nevertheless, a strong decision, design decision was made, was taken by connecting this inner river, a dead end condition now, into to the river up, 
southeast the meander in your right. Cutting and digging all this earth here to connect to the river that goes this direction down here. Above the image, the existing performance of floods and below the new performance in relation to floods as well. On the left, the most frequent floods, the ones that occurs every year, and on, on your right, the more exceptional ones. Uh, what we can see is that the new topography proposed for the new floodable forest uh, or inner river is performing differently only during the most frequent and low range of episodes of floods, from the annual to the 10-period frequency. With higher levels of flood, less frequent, the meander per performs similarly than before the construction of the floodable forest. The section below shows the small amount of soil dug to form this inner river, which is about one feet to three feet deep, this here, that allow us to keep the existing trees on the area. The floodable forest has already been tested in the last phase of construction in April 2013 with the biggest volumes of water recorded in the history of Pamplona. It performed according to the expected and had almost no damage and the river, uh, as you can see here, is entering in your right. Uh, here. This is the new part that connects with the inner river. After the flood, the sun is shining over the irrigated and fertile land. The crown of vegetable gardens is surrounded by a uh, reinforced curtain of riparian forest along the river and the new floodable forest behind. The new floodable forest is planted in a squared matrix of different riparian species combined and overlapped with existing trees and that have been kept. That have been kept. The orientation of the grid responds to the original geometry of the plots, creating urban visual links traced with paths and bridges in their edges. The floodable forest is connected to the river and a pedestrian bridge is built over to keep pedestrian continuity over the existing dike. So we we keep the existing dike, and by cutting here, we build this pedestrian bridge to keep the continuity. We no longer live in a world divided by the dichotomy of natural and artificial. We don't live in a city or a countryside. Most of the people in Western cultures are living in a kind of in-between type of urban-suburban landscape. We can say we live in an increasingly populated world in accelerated process of urbanization where nature is one of the pieces of the whole composite that is planet Earth. This is perceived easily in Europe due to the density and intensity of human transformation throughout centuries, but also in other latitudes with giant pieces of nature and cities in which we can sense that everything is connected through flows of energy, human activity, and natural dynamics. What was offered during the emergence of the Industrial Revolution in Western societies was the cultural figure of the urban park, a kind of big garden, sometimes open and sometimes closed, for people to enjoy their leisure time. Those infrastructures were part of the industrial city. The Central Park of New York, for instance, is a recreation of nature that is still very successful, a reserve of land that was also managing water. 
Currently, the urban landscape and public spaces projects have evolved from the incorporation of fragments of nature into the city to other paradigms for green urban spaces. First, the reclamation of territories occupied by infrastructures, industries, or landfills left. Second, the remediation of water or soils. And third, the production of food or energy. All these well-known projects, together with a number of others, are important contemporary constructions of these new paradigms of urban green spaces slash public spaces. But there is a fourth paradigm, maybe, for urban landscape and public uh, spaces projects building on, the, on a new relation between the cities and the rivers. It is by nature a conflicted relation. The river is historically, in most cases, the reason for the urban settlement to be there, and at the same time, the origin of catastrophes. Until now, thanks to the combination of technical knowledge and urban growth, we have developed a relation based in one single direction, the control of uncertainty, of uncertain natural processes of the river. But now, in the 21st century, we are in a moment of critical transformation due to, first, the climate change and the increased awareness that we cannot completely control some processes, especially the floods, and second, new sensibility about the ecological role of the rivers and their moving processes. It is the moment to review the control strategy dominant to the last, uh, for the last five or seven centuries through dams, dikes, and walls, we cannot control the rivers entirely, and failure means catastrophe in a proportional level of the strength of the failing control processes. The operation room for the river, the one that you can see on the slide, on the Netherlands, since 2004 until the present, is dealing with the relation of rivers and floods with the territory, giving back pieces of land to the rivers temporarily. We have been working since 1996, almost 20 years now, now in rivers inside the urban context, understanding it as an intermediate space shared by city and nature. In this new complex condition, we are uh, in the need of reformulating the relation between the city and its main reason to be there, the river, probably the best vehicle of natural dynamics there for life. Here you can see water, uh, Suera Park and Water Park. And water park. Nevertheless, coming back to Aranzadi Park, post-industrial cities in decline in Western societies have uh, perceived the importance of taking care of their collective spaces to activate the city's economy and to increase life's quality of citizens with the aim of keeping them inside cities in a sort of resilient mode. Within this array of type of urban parks, what Aranzadi Park is announcing is the importance of assuming and taking advantage of natural and artificial dynamics that are already on site without preconception to construct public space. We believe the landscape is not to be drawn. The landscape is always already there and is the result of the relation a society entertains with its territory. It's the result of a certain urban metabolism. If we don't like how it looks like, we should change society's behavior and culture. Aesthetic should not be anymore the main and unique driver of urban landscape. Even if the design is imitating nature, no more aesthetics 
utopias or poetics at the front pace of design processes. Rather, more balanced performances of the complex reality pushed into the future. This is an image of the entrance of the river um, under the pedestrian bridge under construction. Last five. As a result, the urban park of the 21st century could be understood not as an aesthetic garden inspired in paintings, art, or even the nature itself, but as an artifact that is performing in symbiosis with the dynamics on site, the result of re-equalizing urban and natural dynamics, the result of an artificial new ecology. New and old trees, all construction with new functions, on the slopes of the floral forest, different species of bushes. Infiltration lagoons that collect rainwater from buildings and paths. Collective spaces for people to learn about organic agriculture. Ensuring connectivity through some illuminated path without disturbing wildlife with lighting pollution. And to end, Aranzadi Park, a composite of new and old materials, places for water floods and people's picnic a new relationship between rivers and cities. Thank you. So with a lot of these dynamics, there's a lot of complexity going on here about hydrologic patterns, and is that part of, is that area of expertise within your firms? Do you partner with others in terms of the flood management and the recharge? Should I? Yes. I mean, at the... Oops. At the beginning, I, I've shown um, the first slide was a large number of, it's a large group of people working together. And the, the, the point is that the project from the competition moment is just everyone involved. Uh, and the hydrology in this case is key, is key, uh, key but also cultural meaning. And, but basically, it's a large uh, team. So, but my question is, is the team internal to your team or you we collaborate. So it's a web of people that we used to work with, and depending on the project, we collaborate. And we collaborate at the beginning of the mm, competition. Because we and, really and so think, yeah. how can you share that knowledge with design teams, more commercial design teams that don't necessarily have that level of intuition with the collaboration and encouraging them to adopt more of that to get your multi-purpose design. They are a commercial design firm. So, so just keep in mind, these two people have been running a firm for 20 years. That's a private practice. My question is, how can they encourage 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but yeah. I just want to make it clear that they're they, they've been functioning in not within an academic context in the way. Yeah, yeah. I I would like to say that I I know it's I mean I'm a learning process of how it works here, but um, I would say it is a research practice. So our main focus is not or business oriented. So that means, of course, you get paid for that. If you do your work, you're alone, more money for you. But then you care about the uh, multi-approach of it, but it's not something that they require to you to do. So then we incorporate a lot of collaborators at the beginning. We, we arrange our money or whatever, and the more the best, especially that it's not, it's not a collaboration with big uh, uh, businesses, it's just persons that are very skilled on some aspects of the, of the project. So we collaborate with them and then we deliver what we think should be delivered. But what, to me, the difference is, is the model of practice that I understand is a research practice, which is n- not the same thing, I think. I'm in a learning process, but I think it's one, one thing that is important, I think, is the, is the is, is a kind of a spreading of these uh, proposals. So, so, for instance, this uh, Aranzadi Park was part of the Rotterdam uh, Biennale uh, that, uh, that was focusing in the relation between urban and nature or urban and, and natural processes. And this project was an example of, of uh, river dynamics or... Uh, so one way of doing this is, is trying to, to get the world out uh, through different uh, cities and try to have collaborations in, with, with, maybe in this case was a, a totally um, public uh, client, but immediately the foundation that was a private foundation that came into for agriculture engaged with us, so we did the, the building for the foundation and the area of, of of the agriculture of that foundation. Uh, so it makes a kind of a pedagogical approach to that, dealing with uh, these buildings that are resilient to the flood. And we have had this experience of being asked, for instance, the tramway of Zaragoza was, the, was a proposal from a, it was a public project that immediately a, a huge consortium of private takes over to redesign and build and operate for the following 25 years. So in a way, those we, we have been able to infuse this uh, way of thinking to the private in a very difficult way because you have to make the project better than was expected, cheaper for the private to do that, and changing paradigms. So, so in a way, for instance, in the tramway of Zaragoza, the the original project that the municipality commission was making very big differences between the, the rich center and the peripheries. So we, we made a proposal of using the same repertoire of materials, saying the city is only one, so there's only one material and the tramway goes one from the other. Uh, the, social, the, the major was socialist, so we, asked, we, we did a mock-up of the original and our proposal, and the, the, of course the major said, hey, our our uh, elect our pool are in the in the poor side, so we are going to give them the same. You know? So, so in a way, you can 
we have had the opportunity of, of working in this um, pedagogy somehow of the with the private uh, just if, if it if it's worth also. Julie, can you elaborate on the difference between an action plan and a master plan, uh, more so than yeah. semantically? Yeah. Oh, okay, here. Yes, the master plan thing is, um, I've like, the, uh, was it Barbara Kruger, the artist, said, who put the master in the master plan? Yeah. So um, the difference is... Uh, an idea of an action plan being um, one that starts with that kind of skeleton of the landscape armature, you know, of basically what's there, and allowing um, the the site to develop over time to like flesh out. So, to me, the master plans that we often see look like they're all finished, you know, and perfect, and all a fait complete. Um, which, you know, you know, in reality, that's, you know, that's not what happens. Um, so to me, the question is, uh, what are these landscapes in the meantime? And a lot of times what I have found uh, in looking at master plans and critiquing them is what's often left out is, is the public realm, right? Because they're kind of waiting for that to be paid for, right? Um, and right, the, the phenomenon of uh, public-private um, uh, collaborations, partnerships, like the authorities, Battery Park City Authority and all of these, actually are really quite ingenious in terms of saying the public can't, the muni municipalities can't afford all of this public space, but the private investors can. So let's work together to put in this kind of armature. And if you know, like Battery Park City is one of the, first places, right, where the streets and the esplanade and all the parks were put in first. And then that was great because every there was a there there. So then all of the investors came in to build out the master plan. Does that make sense? Yes, thanks. Never easy, Thank you for your presentations. Um, all three projects that you talked about, or all the projects that were talked about, were big projects, or maybe big at least compared to maybe some smaller public space projects like pop-up parks that we're a lot of seeing in a lot of cities across the U.S. So, I'm wondering if you know the theme of revitalization or the size matter is is the scale of the project uh, so key, or can these smaller efforts really make a difference? I know, of course it's Julie. <laughs> I, I have a particular, um, particular example that actually I was, I was going to show today, and it, it um, had to, uh, the example being the Pat's Brewery uh, in Milwaukee. It's a huge, you know, it's a pretty darn big complex and pretty complicated to reuse. Um, so, um, again, we went in and put in this idea of the landscape armature and the tediest, tiniest... I think it's a uh, half-acre park is one of the first pocket parks that are incrementally meant to add up. You know, So, in fact, now that park, pocket park went in and the three buildings around it got occupied. 
now there's another, there's another, and so they're starting to accrete, you know, so um, it, they add up as being these little catalysts, these little kernels. Also, in, in, in going back to, to semi-historic models, if you think in the, in the transformation of Barcelona, uh, the, big, the first big transformation of Barcelona was not the Olympics and all the, all the recovery of mountain of Montjuic and the, the shore, the beaches and the relation with the sea, but the first big important operation was uh, a strategy of small main urban piazzas uh, for every neighborhood. So when the democratic uh, first the first democratic municipal government arrived, decided uh, an operation that was called monumentalization of the periphery. So it was to create a really good quality uh, urban space, a piazza, for every single neighborhood to create pride, to recover the pride and the sense of place. So that was probably the most important uh, operation through this, you could say, pocket parks or small urban piazzas. So uh, an yeah. Another take on, on that, uh, I, would, I would not say that uh, size matters, but when um, someone asks you to do a project, in, in the case of one of the uh, uh, parks, the Suera Park, we started, uh, the client asked us to make a building in a specific site. And this site was the only empty space the city has to connect with the river. So our answer was no, the first one. So then, uh, instead of uh, doing this building in this empty space, but that's what I'm saying, that size matters. So if, if you have a small uh, commission, you, you have to look at around and see if you have partners or other people that you can collaborate with to deliver something more appropriate. And that's part of the uh, uh, way of thinking of a responsible designer, I guess. So uh, we had this commission and then we decided, let's instead of building this building, let's do a, a kind of a, um, a schematic design for the whole riverfront. And then with this schematic design, we ask for money in Europe and then we can build the uh, the building, but also the other pieces, and, and, and try to recover and to save this empty space between the city and the river. But this, of course, instead of having a um, one-year project or two-year project, it was a six-year project <laughs> that was standing on that. What I, what I mean by that is that um, size matters and no matters, but what matters the most, I guess, is the awareness of our answer. So the awareness of, of being delivering an appropriate answer. I know um, that we've got to wrap things up, and I wanted to respond to Ben in one slightly different way, not so much about the projects and the work, which is really inspiring, but to say one thing about these pop-up parks that some of you have seen in your own communities. I think the power of them is less their size and the fact that um, they're created through appropriation and I think one of the things that's evident in almost all the projects we're looking at today uh, is the sense that these are not places that are amenities they don't just look good 
but there are actually um, places of interaction and engagement. And I think the lesson from the pop-up parks is that. What does it mean to be a public space? It means more and more it's a space that you can participate in and appropriate and not just look at. And I think that's maybe a good lesson. Um, I don't know about you, but the, the, these three inspire me immensely. So um, thanks so much. Um, for us, it's summer vacation time. Thanks to all of you who are in the midst of seeing old friends and taking the time to come by. And uh, hopefully see some of you uh, tomorrow over at Campbell Hall, too. Thanks, all. Thank you.